On a fall evening in 2019, after four years of a liberal majority government, after almost a decade of conservative management, Justin Trudeau obtained a second term as Canada's Prime Minister in a slim victory that resulted in a minority government. The NDP suffered a blow falling to 24 seats from the 44 they had won in 2015, while Conservatives acquired a larger share of the popular vote. It was apparent to me the Liberals' appeal was slipping. Two things were clear that October night. One, Trudeau struggled with motivating voters as he toured for re-election throughout Canada. And two, the results laid bare the deep-seated divisions in our country. Conservatives' undershare cleaned the two westernmost prairie provinces, Saskatchewan and Alberta, electing not a single Liberal in those provinces. Fast forward almost two years, and it's official. Canadians are returning to the polls. Welcome to the Rundown. I'm Kiersey Stanford. There's a lot to unpack in this first episode, so let's dive right in. On, a, on Monday, September 20th, Canadians will go back to the polls. 338 seats are now vacant. Even with the sporadic support of the bloc and usually the NDP, it's not enough for Justin Trudeau, who holds great aspirations, to thrust East Party to a new majority. Recent polling shows this would be the greatest chance Liberals have had at obtaining a majority since 2015. But Canadians are quick to point out that the timing of this snap election, it it's happening as the Delta variant it continues to rage throughout the country, and one can help but question if this move was opportunistic. Of course it was. Why else would Trudeau not proceed with the mandate Canadian voters granted to him almost two years ago? Generally, yes, every party would prefer to have a majority in the House, and minority governments don't last longer than two years. However, the 43rd Parliament that was elected in 2019, they outlasted my own expectations and they have had to deal with their share of issues throughout this unprecedented time. Let's see, um, there was, there is a global pandemic, an opioid crisis, record spending deficits, political scandals, um, a reckoning at, of cultural genocide of residential schools, a national vaccine program, and a housing crisis to boot. Oh, and let us not forget a climate emergency that has by no means slowed down. Now, I know it's no wonder that we're all anxious and fearful about our future. And with schools on the brink of reopening and cases still rising in the four biggest provinces, a snap election right now, it certainly was not the wisest decision. So, here we are. We're into the third week of the election cycle, and it's time to determine what course of action we want to take. Leaders are actively striving to convince Canadians their concept is the right plan to tackle our most significant hurdles and outline a map forward. The question we should be asking ourselves is who do we trust to help us onward? Since becoming leader of the Conservatives, O'Toole has fought to expand his party's big blue tent. When the election was called the Conservatives, they were only leading in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Yet, 
their numbers in British Columbia recovered enough to put them back in second place nationally, ahead of the NDP, and most recently, surpassing the Liberals. Now, Singh continues to rise in favorability ratings. New Democrats have their best numbers in British Columbia, and they remain around 20% support everywhere throughout the country, with the exception of Alberta and Quebec. In Quebec, the bloc could very well hinder any party's odds at a majority. Um, Quebec voters, they're, they're the most fluid voters in the country, and I wouldn't be surprised if O'Toole doesn't make any headway in Quebec. Now, the Greens, they remain below double digits throughout Canada. Um, no surprise there when they are... when. A leader like Paul is at the helm, and Bernier's PPC, they have their best results in Alberta. Now, these polls, they paint a firm picture. Canadians, they remain wary of the inconsistencies and the incremental half-measures of Justin's Liberals, who are not having the outcome that they hope for by calling this election. Their support in British Columbia and the Atlantic, it continues to slip. Yet in BC, it's practically a three-way race. The Conservatives and Liberal war room since the onset, onset of the election have ejected attacks on each other, while the NDP persisted in driving their message home to Canadians. A recent poll by Angus Reid Institute shows Singh has the highest favorability rating of all federal leaders, and there's a reason for that. Canadians want a leader who means what they say. Since 2017, people have gotten to know Jagmeet, and they like what they see, they like what they are hearing. He stands in stark contrast to Justin Trudeau, who has achieved a low bar of ethics and morality since becoming Prime Minister. The scandals, they started early, and they've continued ever since. First was the infamous trip to the Bahamas in 2016, when Trudeau and his family accepted a vacation on Aga Khan's private island and rode in a helicopter that was owned by the billionaire and his Mali Muslim leader, whose foundation was formally registered to lobby Trudeau, including his officials. That organization, right? That organization collected hundreds of millions of dollars in Canadian federal grants to advance its work overseas. Then another scandal, it resulted in Trudeau losing two of his top female cabinet ministers, one of whom is the first indigenous woman to become minister of justice. Both, <clears throat> excuse me, both resigned over Trudeau urging then Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould, to overlook SNC-Lavalin, one of Canada's largest engineering companies from prosecution, for allegedly influencing Libyan officials in return for lucrative government contracts between 2001 and 2011. Now, SNC, they lobbied the federal government for what's called a DPA, a Deferred Prosecution Agreement. That would have essentially um, allowed them to avoid criminal charges, but when the Public Prosecution Service of Canada denied that request, saying that the company would have to stand trial and face a criminal conviction prohibiting them from obtaining government contracts in Canada, 
In enter several prominent liberals, including Trudeau, who decided to put pressure on the Attorney General's office. For those actions, Canada's Ethics Commissioner said Trudeau violated um, federal conflict of interest rules, which almost cost the Liberals their grip on power. And, of course, who can forget the self-interest aspect of the Wee scandal? That produced another ethics investigation into Trudeau and then Finance Minister Bill Morneau. Making the same mistake twice, I guess, solidifies the perception that Trudeau is either too inept to be Prime Minister or the rules just don't apply to these Liberals who promised back in 2015 sunny ways and real change. Remember that when Justin said he would do government differently and would um, be above reproach on ethics? Well, how did that work out? He swiftly became the first prime minister ever to break the ethics statute. He also committed himself to restore Canada's reputation on the world stage. What did he do? In 2018, during an eight-day trip to India, the charismatic prime minister with his family in tow enthusiastically and repeatedly overdid it with traditional dress. But the real embarrassment of the state visit to India happened when a photo of that trip emerged with Sophie Trudeau and a man named Jezebel Atwell. Now, they were at a reception in Mumbai and Atwal was convicted, you may remember, in 1986 for the attempted murder of an Indian politician who was visiting Canada at the time. Mm -hmm. Just let that sink in for a moment. Um, Justin Trudeau, <clears throat> pardon me, Justin Trudeau hasn't only become plagued with scandal from his time in office. To make matters worse, the previous transgressions before becoming Prime Minister, they still linger and follow him to this day. From wearing blackface multiple times, and then in 2018, a newspaper piece uh, resurfaced from 2000, that emerged where Trudeau had been accused, allegedly, of groping and inappropriately handling a female report reporter during an event at the Kokanee Summit in Creston, BC. Now, he did come out and apologize. However, he sidestepped this. While issuing his apology, asserting women in professional settings, they just usually experience interactions differently than men. Mm -hmm. Oh, Justin. So not on brand for that fine feminist that you claim to be. Canadians should have the peace of mind that they can sleep soundly if they stumble on trouble sometimes. Unfortunately, the truth is for many, they can trust that their government will not ignore or reject them. But all Canadian families contribute to the good of our country. So it is infuriating to see the prosperity of our nation not being shared for, fairly. All Canadians should have the chance to discover their talents and reach their full potential in the world. As a nation that is arguably one of the most respected on earth, we should be helping people who are struggling to put food on the table. 
there should be no ongoing, long-term, or short-term boiled watery, boiled water advisories for First Nations. We should not be lessening taxes for profitable corporations and the wealthy. Wealth tax avoidance offers a massive opportunity for tax reform in this country. I can say, however, that I'm surprised at the lack of action taken on tax havens from the conservatives and liberals. After all, three former prime ministers were named in the Paradise Papers, Paul Merton, John Cretier, Brian Mulroney, and Trudeau's former fundraiser and close advisor, Stephen Bramfman and his company. They were linked to a $60 million offshore trust in the Cayman Islands. Of course, all of this is legal, it's a flagrant unethical abuse of the tax system, yes, but it's legal nonetheless. Now, some countries have taken real action um, by taking tax evaders to court. Some have actually been lucky enough to recover billions. But the Canadian government, the true north strong and free, only discusses this matter when it's the NDP who are on the opposite lines of the aisle calling for tax fairness, or there's an election cycle. In 2019, research by the PBO found that in 2016 alone, $996 billion was held by Canadian corporations in offshore destinations, including tax havens. That same report found Canada lost $25 billion in legal tax avoidance schemes. And the CRA, they reported legal tax avoidance schemes lead upwards to 26 billion roughly in uncollected tax revenues every year. There are more than 60 tax havens worldwide. In Canada, we are a meaningful player of that sport and we've made minimal effort to stop it. In 2014, $199 billion flowed out of Canada into the world's top 10 tax havens. In 2016, at an anti-corruption summit in London, dozens of countries agreed to work collectively to tackle these tax havens. But Canada made few commitments that would actually change Canadian law. Certain loopholes were exploited at every turn, and there is still no deterrent. What we've done is perfected a legalized tax evasion system and it's posing a real threat to our economy. I mean, it's one thing for the government to say that they want to get to the bottom of it. Yes, okay. But it's an entirely different circumstance when no means is exerted to actually remedy the situation, right? Well, I shouldn't say no means are taken. Ottawa has signed deals with at least two dozen tax havens since 2009. They did this essentially as a method to compel companies to share information about Canadians who have money there. Basically, less secrecy for companies to set up a shop and bring home profits tax-free. Now conservatives and liberals, they'll use this as a rebuttal. But it's not good enough when there is a double standard in this country when it comes to those affluent individuals who can afford high-priced attorneys to attain settlements with the CRA and those who can't. That is unjust. 
So even though the government has taken some action to crack down on tax evasion by wealthy individuals, it is still not enough when it hasn't adequately gone after corporations using tax haven subsidiaries to shift profits and avoid paying taxes. The largest 60 publicly traded companies on the TSX, Toronto Stock Exchange, have over a thousand subsidiaries or joint ventures in tax haven jurisdictions. And get this, many of their boards and CEOs rank among Canada's wealthiest. Progressive taxation, <clears throat> progressive taxation is not necessarily a bad thing. Corporate responsibility, it should involve paying a fair share of taxes. The left, we're not asking for more. We're asking for a fair share. We're asking for a fair footing. We're asking for the playing field to be leveled. It, it's not good enough when there's a massive disconnect between employment levels and investment in tax haven jurisdictions. Statistics Canada latest foreign direct investment data, it shows that the use of tax havens by Canadian corporations, it continues to keep rising. International tax policy, allowing profits to be artificially yet legally shifted to low or no tax jurisdictions, has compromised our government's fiscal health. The competition and lower tax rates with these tax havens have only resulted in individual taxpayers picking up the slack. The middle class Canada in this country is being squeezed out, and it is time to push back against the social inequities that this regressive tax system has borne. Conservatives, economists, they'll go on mainstream media and they'll say corporate tax should be lower to incentivize economic activity in Canada. Liberals, they'll say a patronizing argument like how important it is for companies to invest in their employees instead of paying a lot of tax. This way of governing, it's depriving our country of much needed revenue. But the reality is that from a purely statistical perspective, we are still not seeing the type of growth in business and investment that would make up for the lost revenue since we lowered our tax rates from 35%. Effective tax policy, it should be about closing these loopholes and ending these sophisticated tax schemes, not about lowering rates and lining the pockets of Canada's wealthiest. Liberal and conservative governments have cut corporate tax rate far more aggressively in this country than personal income tax. Stephen Harper, he even bragged that his corporate tax rates would give companies the lowest tax rate on new investment out of any G7 country. Now, in his defense, years of previous liberal governments and nine Paul Martin budgets left Canada one of the highest tax rate tax na uh, nations in the G7. But the thing is, conservative cuts under Harper. They included eliminating 300 jobs in the CRA division that were responsible for investigating offshore tax dodgers. Internal records showed conservatives under Harper were closing their international tax evasion units and actually cutting 50 highly trained senior managers. We have a decision to make about our future 
and their children's future. We face two choices. Our future, it could be one of opportunity and optimism, or we can continue on our present course of insecurity and limited opportunity. The federal government that we elect this election, it'll be them who, who will determine which route we take. Conservatives and liberals, they speak for the privileged few. They have a track record that will back that up. For them to recognize, however, their fundamental and persistent problems that are affecting Canadians, the real meat and potato issues, these two parties need to take a step back and lick their wounds. After all, it's the lopsided ownership of financial wealth that is one of the greatest contributors to inequality in Canadian society. It would be impossible to implement a progressive economic plan without the votes to back it up. And honestly, I remain cautiously optimistic that the new Democrats will get them. Even if their center of gravity has always been policies focused on addressing inequality and seeing as pragmatic and can get the job done, that's not the issue. You'll hear no argument from me there. The problem, the problem is other parties are routinely echoed the claim that an NDP government would only further deepen the economic crisis. That is so not true, and I hope now you can see why they would push this false narrative. Gaslighting is straight from the Conservatives' playbook, and I'm willing to bet it's where the Liberals got it from. I believe an essential detail to mention here is under the NDP's plan, long-running finances will be fiscally sustainable. According to the Parliamentary Budget Officer's fiscal sustainability measures, under the NDP, their debt-to-GDP ratio, it never rises above the Liberals' 2017 level. And it continues to decline throughout the four years of the NDP's fiscal framework. Now, Liberals will infiltrate the political discourse with warnings to vote strategically to avoid a Conservative government, it's a false claim based on no empirical evidence. It is, however, a very skillful political tactic, one Canadians routinely fall for. At this moment, we are essentially writing our futures. We need to create pathways of opportunities, and we need to do that now. New Democrats hope to build a caucus that is large enough to govern to get that job done. I'm hoping, at the very least, Canadians will give compassionate consideration to that and will allow new Democrats to govern to get that done. At least they become the official opposition and hold either Trudeau or O'Toole's feet to the fire. It's a crucial time, folks, and we need to stand up to the powerful interests and fight for the working class. Like I said, the middle class in this country is being squeezed out, and it would appear that it can only be achieved by our political will to send more new Democrats to Ottawa in as many of those vacant seats as possible. We expect it, don't we? Elected officials will use every parliamentary device at their disposal to bring effective bills forward. So why is it that 
so many of us remain silent when the House of Commons remains constipated. Why is it? Why are we honestly content with the Conservatives' lackadaisical approach and the Liberals' middle-of-the-road, happy-medium, foot-dragon measures? New Democrats and Jagmeet Singh, they are earnestly fighting for the socio-economic policies that matter, that will move us forward. They haven't stopped that fight. And they remain invested in that fight, for a better tomorrow. I know this has been a startling decade. It's, it's one where it seems that everything and nothing has changed. The same conditions exist today as they did 10 years ago, and to some extent are even exacerbated. So yes, I do think it's time for a new direction. With new government. With new leadership. We are long overdue for NDP to take over and lead a charter course toward equality, prosperity, truth, justice, and reconciliation. And if there is a consistency to be found here, it's the NDP is our only chance to defend against the more prominent mechanisms of inequality. So don't let the fear of conservatives and being somewhat comfortable with the liberals keep you from making a change. Alright folks, well, that's it for me everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to this teaser's pilot episode of The Rundown. Um, going forward, there will be uh, guests. Uh, we'll be discussing the latest issues and keeping a close eye on the election going forward. I hope you enjoyed it. You can reach out to me. Email is steve at kiersystanford.ca. Um, and hopefully you can favorite or follow uh, the podcast and keep updated on whenever there's a new one. Take care and have a good weekend.